There's a quite endearing book and a very revealing one and makes excellent reading too about a time and a place in our history about the Roosevelt family. This is Teddy Roosevelt and his family, but it's about his boyhood, Mornings on Horseback, and the title is significant, dealing with Teddy Roosevelt and the outdoors. And the author is David McCullough, who was an excellent, what, chronicler. He won the National Book Award for his one about the Panama Canal, The Path Between the Seas. The subtitle of this book, Mornings on Horseback, is a story of an extraordinary family a Vanished Way of Life, and that is one of the themes of Mr. McCullough's book, and The Unique Child Who Became Theodore Roosevelt, T.R., and Simon and Chester, the publishers. So in a moment, David McCullough, my guest, and his reflections about mornings on horseback after this message. There is no body of our people whose interests are more inextricably interwoven with interests of all the people. Here's the case with the farmers. The Country Life Commission should be revived with greatly increased powers. Its abandonment was a severe blow, blow to the interests of our people. The welfare of the farmer is a basic need of this nation. It is the men from the farm who in the past have taken the lead in every great movement within this nation, whether in time of war or in time of peace. It is well to have our cities prosper, but it is not well if they prosper at the expense of the country. In this movement, the lead must be taken by the farmer themselves. But our people as a whole, through their governmental agencies, should back the farmers. Everything possible should be done to better the economic condition of the farmer, and also to increase the social value of the life of the farmer, the farmer's wife, and their children. The burdens of labor and loneliness bear heavily on the women in the country. Their welfare should be the especial concern of all of us. Everything possible should be done to make life in the country profitable so as to be attractive from the economic standpoint. And there should be just the same chance to live as full, as well-rounded, and as highly useful lives in the country as in the city. That's a 1912 scratchy record. Through it you hear the rather virile voice of former President Theodore Roosevelt running on the third party ticket, the Bull Moose ticket, the, campaign, the election that Woodrow Wilson won in 1912. I was thinking that voice, David McCullough, the voice of the man whose childhood you captured, that tells you something, doesn't it? Uh, that man at that time. I was fascinated by it for several reasons. First of all, how similar the uh, accent is to FDR, which is the same upper class uh, New York uh, social milieu uh, producing these two extraordinary political figures. You know, the easiest thing in the world in that day was for politicians was to have been born in a log cabin. And here we had a president, the first Roosevelt in the White House, who uh, was born not only with a silver spoon in his mouth, but who went to Harvard and sounded like Harvard, and who was a bird watcher and a very elegant fellow in every way. So to have become a popular political figure a big city Republican uh, born to all that affluence was really an extraordinary uh, accomplishment politically. The other th two things that, other, that struck me about that conversation was, this, was the interest in the women. You know, he's saying that uh, we want to make uh, life on the farm good for women, fulfilling for women as well, is a strong theme all through his life, not only in his personal uh, the personal side of his life, where women were much, much more important than I think we've realized before, but also 
this sense that women really do deserve to be equals, which goes all the way back to his Harvard thesis, which was written about uh, women and how they ought to have equality. And he said, you know, this is eight, he graduated in uh, 1880. Wow, yeah. Uh, he said in that thesis, written as an undergraduate, that uh, he didn't see why women should take the name of their husband if they wanted to carry on with their maiden name. He thought that was perfectly realistic. He was a Lucy Stone Leaguer. Exactly, and he also thought that they should serve in the military, you know, 100 yeah, years yeah. ago, which was a yeah. you know, revolutionary thought then. We're talking now about uh, only 15 years, though, after the end of the Civil War, 1880. Uh, and he's talking about the rights of women and the small farmer. Here he became... This man of the elite became sort of a populist here. This we're talking about 1912 now, with the Bull Moose Progressive yes. Party. Yes, he, un, unlike most of us, he became increasingly liberal the older he got. That's interesting. Uh, the uh, you know there was no uh, atrophy uh, as far as his uh, political imagination went, and uh, so that by the time he ran for on the Bull Moose ticket, he was really the most yeah. progressive voice in the country by far, having come from these very conservative yeah. origins. And having, of course, made his career as a as a, as a Republican yeah. standard bearer, you said, you know, uh, listen to his voice. You thought of FDR's uh, elegant voice, the upper class voice, and his. And so we have something interesting. It was Eleanor was his niece, wasn't it? That's right. Eleanor That's Roosevelt right. was Teddy Roosevelt's and, niece. Yes, and and the uh, the, the altruistic yeah. uh, theme, uh, the genes, if you will, that run through the Roosevelt family come from that side of the family, not from the. Hudson River crowd who were who were quite different. It was Eleanor who was the most like Theodore Roosevelt's father, the first Theodore Roosevelt, who was one of the great philanthropists, one of the great altruists of New York City of it's, his day. It's this picture you paint. These are the first uh, uh, 24 years or so of Teddy Roosevelt's life, isn't it? Sort of the first. Uh, yes, it ends from as the, he becomes. No, he before he became. Uh, governor. Yes, it ends when he returns from the West, returns from the Chicago Convention of 1884, and from his time in the Badlands of North Dakota, uh, to re-embrace life, uh, uh, to be married again, and also, very importantly, to re-embrace his his vocation, his true vocation, which was politics. We've got to come to that, of course, the ma the macho quality of Teddy Roosevelt. There's a, your book, which is a beautiful study of a time and a place and a class in our society, isn't it? It's New York, very upper crust, at a certain time that Edith Wharton memorializes yes. in, in her novels. Yes, and it's a vanished society, yeah. a vanished yeah. people, if you will, because they, uh, they only lasted a relatively short time, it's just as you say, from the end of the Civil War until about 1900, and then all of the powers of the 20th century, all of the egalitarian uh, forces yeah. at work yeah. on our society, yeah. really obliterated yeah. that, that Crowd. Let's talk about that kind of family, the family of Theodore Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt's father, Theodore, and his mother, the Southern Belle. But mostly, they didn't like the uh, robber barons. They didn't like Jim Fisk or no, the others. No, no, because they weren't gentlemen. That's it. They weren't opposed to them because they were wealthy or influential. Mm. They yeah. were opposed to them because they didn't live by the code. And um, also, of course, they, there was some, uh, undoubtedly, uh, subconscious sour grapes and that these people were gaining such enormous power and it, until that point the gentlemen if you yeah, will of the yeah. of uh, society had control of power and to see these not only nouveau riche but people who are really quite uh, unprincipled uh, crooks yeah. by and large taking control of power was terribly yeah. disturbing to them so this study then a study of noblesse oblige of helping those less 
fortunate. That with yeah. great wealth went the responsibility yeah. and the obligation yeah. to do your part to, to alleviate suffering, to alleviate poverty, and so forth. Now, a lot of that have cr took the form of moralizing, uh, preaching, and handouts. And where Theodore strikingly differs from his father is that he chooses to make politics the vehicle by which mm -hmm. he is going to accomplish the same ends that were done by gentlemen in their off yeah. hours in, in uh, yeah. uh, part-time uh, altruistic or, or uh, philanthropic you know, He efforts. really entered the ring. But hat in the ring. That's right. Is that his phrase? Oh, it sure is. Hat in the ring. He was a great phrase maker, yeah. uh, including, uh, you know, I'm as strong as a bull moose, which yeah. started the bull moose party uh, theme. Uh, he, even, he was the first one to say uh, that Maxwell House coffee is good to the last drop, for example. There's a whole string yeah. of And, these. of course, the thing that's used by all the warriors, all the, at the moment, cold warriors, of course, is uh, speak softly, carry the big stick. And, of course, he never spoke softly. No. <laughs> but now we come to that, the unlikely figure who became, oh, to set the scene further, he became suddenly the most colorful figure in American politics. Without any colorful. question. Colorful. Colorful. Uh, until he came along, uh, let alone, oh, a governor like John Peter Altgeld here was an exception. The government, certainly presidents were, a, following Lincoln, were a pretty dull lot. Bland, a little overfed. Yeah. Charisma was not uh, one of their long suits and wasn't expected of a president. I think that's interesting that uh, the, 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 the country, the, the, the voter, didn't expect that a president would be a glamorous figure, he a was publicized a figure. celebrity. Was, yeah. Roosevelt was that because he was so much that every president who preceded him had not been. He was young, he was exuberant, he was energetic, he was determined to make changes, to use power, as he said, for, for good. He, and he adored being president. I think that's one of the reasons there's a big Teddy Roosevelt revival now. He liked the job. He liked power. He loved being an American. He loved uh, the sense that tomorrow was going to we were going to make tomorrow better than today, which is a real tonic for a country. And, of course, all of this preceded the first war. You yeah. have to remember yeah. that. This was a time they call the time of innocence, sort of relative, relative innocence. Absolutely. We were building the Panama Canal. We were... We were uh, Inventing airplanes. Of course, we he doing. always was a jingoist. I mean, he always was uh, the Marshall boy, the Marshall man, wasn't he? He was. And uh, uh, one of the most interesting observations by members of his family is that uh, had his father not hired a substitute to go and fight for him in the Civil War, Theodore might not have been that way, that this was a kind of compensation oh. for, the, for the shame he felt that his father, like many wealthy yeah. men, had simply uh, taken advantage of what was known as the so substitute this, this system. This is a study of a small boy, very frail and weak and ill with asthma. There's a remarkable study, by the way, you have here of asthma itself. Thank you. Thank you. I, I spent months on that one chapter on asthma because I was trying to find out not only what was causing his asthma, yeah. but what exactly is this disease? And I think that uh, for those, as I was, who don't know much about it, uh, there are two enormous surprises about it. The first is how terrible it is, how really awful, excruciating, You're savagely You're talking to painful. a kid who had asthma. And secondly, how many people suffer from it? Because we can't tell, you know, I don't know that you had asthma. There's no outward sign that you had this affliction. And, and then, of course, the fact that any family that has an asthmatic, an acutely asthmatic child within its midst is immensely affected, everybody in the family. Well, I was so taken with that chapter for personal, very subjective reasons. It was very brief time as a small boy of six, seven, eight. But I remember, as you describe it, the wheezing, 
the difficult number, but the whistling. I remember whistling in the dark. Yeah. <laughs> I, I literally yeah. did whistle in the dark at night, of course. It's but a disease it, of the night. It's a disease of the night, isn't which it? It's, which is part of its mystery. And, of course, we know much, much more now than they did in the 1870s about the psychosomatic aspects mm. of the disease. Now, you, you, when you use the word psychosomatic, some people instantly say, oh, you mean it's all in the mind. No, it isn't all in the mind. The mind and the body, the point is, the mind and the body are never separated. Mm. And so in that sense, there's a one school of medicine developing yeah. today that all illness is psychosomatic and yeah. that you can't separate the mind from what's happening to the you body know, and vice versa. What makes your book also a good psychological study, we're, we're leading up to this very virile, outdoors, macho, by George, by Jingo, charge up San Juan Hill sort of guy, who's frail and scared. And Sundays, that's interesting, the family's very religious. Yes. Sundays were particularly excruciating for him. And those were the days, so Saturday night usually was the time that the yeah. attack came. And that was, to, for me, one of those great moments when I had all this played out, written out in a, in a calendar that I'd made where I'd entered the, the attacks and the, and the instances of illness in red ink. And I saw one morning as I looked at this calendar that I'd drawn for myself, this guide, my goodness, they're all, it's all happening on weekends. It doesn't have anything to do with atmospheric pressure. It doesn't have anything to do with uh, uh, the pollen count. It happens uh, any season, all times of the year. It's happening on Sunday. Why Sunday? Well, of course, the first thing that a physician would look at today is what is the response of the family? And the response of the family to his attacks was with the father, this beloved father, father who was everything the little boy was not. What was he called? Greatheart? Greatheart from Greatheart. Bunyan's of great figure of Greatheart. This strong, handsome, confident, virile, uh, tremendously attractive father would take the little boy, this frightened, frail, really pathetic little boy, for a day in the country, just the two of them. And to have father's undivided attention like that was the most precious thing in the child's life. The father doubtless recognized that. And the father really saved his life by this sort of nurturing, um, empathetic quality that the father had. The father was a very great man. And the irony is that the, that the son, the little boy, used to write in his diaries, if only someday I can do something to justify father's name. In other words, my name. I'm Theodore Roosevelt. He's Theodore Roosevelt. How can I ever, as he, I, this is what he says, you know, how can I ever live up to father? And what happens is, that he so lives up to father, he becomes such a figure in, in the world, let alone in the country, that he obliterates his father's name. Most people are unaware that there was a first Theodore Roosevelt, yet this first Theodore Roosevelt... The junior was dropped. The junior was dropped, interestingly, and, mm -hmm. his, and then Teddy, the president's son, becomes junior, almost as if he's ah, saying there was yeah, no, yeah. There was no pre previous Theodore ah. Roosevelt. And, uh, but so he, he obliterates the past. He does, and uh, uh, but yet when he the very first night he was in the White House, there was a bowl of uh, yellow roses on the table, and his sisters were having dinner with him. And, you know, McKinley had been shot, and the country was in mourning. The new president, this young man, goes into the White House, and they're having dinner, and he's, and Theodore, the president, sees the flowers. He says, "Isn't this strange? Those are yellow roses, my father's favorite flower." He said, "I feel, and it's my father's birthday today." Hmm. He says, "I feel as though his hand is on my shoulder." And he had this sense all of his life that he had to have that father uh, figure with him. Now, the father, the father felt very strongly that life must be lived intensely, that, that life was short. 
and that it could end at any moment for any of us. You know, that oblivion wasn't just down the road sometime. It could be five minutes from now. Mm. So therefore, his great preachment to these children, all of whom were ill in some way, and quite seriously. That's so. right. His, his sister. His sister had Cot's disease, yeah. which gave her a form of uh, deforma de deformed spine, which was like a hunchback. Her, his younger brother, Elliot, who was the most attractive and, and physically uh, uh, vigorous and, uh, and uh, coordinated of the two boys, uh, had some strange kind of epileptic uh, fit Eleanor's and father. ultimately uh, drank himself to death at a very young age. Eleanor's father, correct. And Corrine, the youngest, was... Uh, what they called delicate then, which meant she was subject to illnesses frequently, and she was also asthmatic. But the father would preach to these children, mm. seize action, you know, get, uh, seize the moment, get action. Mm. Uh, man was not meant to be an oyster. Mm. Uh, embrace life. Uh, and then Teddy writes in one of the most revealing of things he ever said about himself or the whole Roosevelt uh, theme was, Black care rarely sits behind the rider whose pace is you fast You use that as the epigraph exactly. in the beginning. Yeah. You have to think a little bit about what that means. Black care rarely sits behind a rider whose pace is fast mm -hmm. In other words, the demons, mm -hmm. the doubts, the fears of life you run that, faster we, than the that we all are possessed by, the only way to cope with that is to get out and go like the blazes. Outrun them. Yes, oh. and to and to and don't don't think about yourself. You know, don't don't become self-absorbed. Become absorbed with what's beyond, with you what's out there. You know, there's a black spiritual that's almost identical to that. It's about death, and it's about outrunning death, beating death. Death is very I literal. I didn't know that. I wish I'd. And, you know the words to it? Ah, God, I think I have it here somewhere in uh, uh, South, the Sea Island singers off the coast of uh, South Carolina sing it, and it's that very thing. So there it is. It's personifying the demon, mm. but by God, you're going to pull a Jesse Owens on him. Well, I, just, I was just reading a, uh, a new study by a psychologist, you know, new in quotes, mm -hmm. saying that probably the best way to cope with depression is to get out and do things. <laughs> you know, that, that to uh, to stop thinking about yourself. By the stop way, being you know so, that today uh, we live in a, perhaps a bleak time, but there are six o'clock news doesn't cover many community projects, people challenging whatever administration may be for, in their way. And the women, mostly women whom I know involved, suddenly become very alive. They count, whereas those sitting by the sidelines are feel impotent and uh, have given up. Whereas the others are healthier physically. Yes. For the doing. Yes. Well, you know, the studies they've made of the areas in the world where people live particularly, long, uh, you know, very, very long-lived, uh, one of the things they find in all of those societies is that old people are venerated and they, are, they never retire. Work. They, 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 wor they, they work, but also they are made to feel that what yeah. they contribute yeah. is important to the total yeah. social yeah. pattern. Theodore Roosevelt's mother is also somebody that uh, has gone very uncelebrated and, and, and mistakenly so. She was quite a woman. Talk about her. Well, for one thing, you see, she was from the South. Uh, there's very good evidence, in fact, that uh, she was the model or the inspiration for the figure of Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind. She grew up on a plantation right outside of Georgia, a place that looked not unlike uh, Tara is supposed to have looked. And she came to New York, and she was beautiful, and she was Southern, and as a consequence, uh, too many historians and biographers, in my view, have therefore concluded that she must have been uh, frivolous and stupid. She was neither. The stereotype Southern Exactly. Bad. They just uh, stamped her. If she's beautiful and Southern, she must be dumb. She wasn't, she wasn't at all. Furthermore, she was a very vivid person with a very active imagination, a great sense, of a great love of words, a great love of drama, 
and most importantly, a great love of sort of mythic, heroic tales. The stories of uh, heroism and bravery and courage and, and romantic adventuring that these children grew up with didn't come from the Roosevelt side. They were rather phlegmatic burgers, those uh, New York Roosevelts. Uh, they, they had comparatively little adventure in their lives. And I don't think, uh, if there was a sense of humor anywhere mm -hmm. in that whole crowd, I never, I never found it. Uh, but the Bullocks of Georgia were the, were the reverse side of the coin. And as one uh, friend of the family once said, you know, uh, Theodore Roosevelt was really much more like a Bullock than he was like a Roosevelt. And uh, he, because he had all this sort of swashbuckling, a little bit... Uh, to the abundance. Uh, yeah, and a little bit, uh, some people thought, a little bit off-center, you know, mm. a, little, a little touch of mm. sort of divine madness mm. there. Um, because these Bullocks were, uh, you know, very adventurous People. They went to sea, they got in duels, they went off uh, as uh, pioneers in the woods, and uh, they, uh, it's this delicate, exquisite little mm -hmm. mother, Mitty Bullock, mm -hmm. who in her bedtime tales to the children was talking about cougars uh, uh, ripping men to shreds and vice versa, these blood-curdling tales coming from, not from the father, but from the mother. Mm. And there's, so there's a double strain here, mm. the strain of the... Uh, uh, family of New York, the affluent, uh, charity-giving family, noblesse oblige, Theodore Roosevelt, senior, senior, highly respectable, yeah. and the rather slightly eccentric Southern strain. So now we come, we'll take a pause now, but we're talking about what made T.R. what he became. And now we come to action, school, action, and politics. Well, we're talking to David McCulloch, and the book is, it's a beauty, it's been critically acclaimed and justifiably. And Mornings on Horseback, and the very title itself will come to that too. Again, outdoors for the sickly little boy. Uh, the story of the extraordinary family and vanished way of life. That's interesting. There's a sort of a poignant aspect to it's it. It's gone. Even, even though it was an affluent family, there's a marvelous, if I could just digress for a moment, there's a marvelous film by the Indian filmmaker, Satyajit Ray. Uh, it's called The Music Room. And it's about the end of the Raj, end of a time. And he is a democratic man, Ray, the director. The Rajas were, didn't do much of anything. But the end of that epoch and the money changers taking over is a poignant moment. He says when any era ends or a class goes, or something, there's always a poignance to it, even though the class may have been, in the case of the Raj, rather useless. So in a sense, we're talking about a vanished time and a vanished moment, aren't we? We are, but you see, in that era, in that milieu, to be useless yeah. was unforgivable. Ah, yeah. This is the old puritanical right. strain. To make oneself useful was, was the ultimate yeah. objective. Well, remember I asked you, we left, we got dropped that other shoe, and I, he got the most severe attacks you found out in your research before Sunday. Well, to be useful, the father was preaching a good man. Sunday is also church day. Oh, you kept the Sabbath. You wore good yeah. clothes. You didn't do much. You yeah. sang some hymns, and, yeah. uh, and the kids uh, didn't like that, That's naturally yeah. enough. Yeah. But what's interesting is that the father, who often went to church twice on the same Sunday, would also go out with the boy, and he was getting away from church, too. He was too. Somebody else could have taken the child yeah. away, but he was this. Yeah. And if, if the asthma was a bargain between them, then this little boy was paying a terrible price to have that time with yeah. his father. Mm. And it's, um, it's very poignant because the child has this fire in him. Why, why does the sickly, weak, 
pathetic child soar to become the strong man, the emblem of, of American masculine strength to this day. Mm. Whereas the brother, who seemed to have everything, strength, uh, good looking, all the qual he was the he was the pick of the litter. He takes the nosedive. He, he destroys nose. himself yeah. by crawling into a bottle. Yeah. David McCulloch, my guy. Simon and Schuster, the publishers of uh, Mornings on Horseback. We'll resume in a moment after this message. So resuming the conversation with David McCulloch and his biography, the first 24 years or so of T.R.'s life. T.R., again, the initials, I first suppose, time. too. Is that the first, first time? First time. And uh, the first that this man instituted as president is really remarkable. Mm. He was the first, it's hard for us to conceive, he was the first president to call it the White House. Oh, I didn't know that. It would always yeah, been yeah. called the executive mansion. He was the first president to play tennis and to have a tennis cabinet, as he called it. He was the first president to, uh, the first man who had been president to go in an automobile, an airplane, and a submarine. Yet, interestingly, he was also our last man on horseback. Uh, I suppose mm. we don't count the present president. Uh, but he was legitimately on horseback. He bridges the 19th and the 20th centuries, and he is a 19th century man, and that, that's what's so important to understand. You see, I feel very strongly, uh, Studs, that, that we don't really understand the last half of the 19th century yet. We're just beginning to understand it, and that's, that's where our roots are. That's our origin. Let's stick with that. This is fascinating. This is one of the, you might say, subtexts of your book here, the end of that era, but also this moment this historic moment of invention, you say, the automobile, uh, the submarine, the expanding country, beginning of since empire too, after the Spanish-American War, this guy comes along. Uh, the world is changing in every way, isn't it? Yes. The mores, the culture yes. is changing yes. as well as technologically. Yes. So it is a key moment, and he is a focal figure in that. And he was moment. exactly right for that time because he he symbolized in his presence, in his attitude, um, this exuberance, this sort of almost, it's like the, an adolescent who suddenly discovers how big and strong and, and uh, full of, uh, of energy he is. The country felt that way, and the pre this new, he was only 42 years old when he became president, he felt that way. But if you look at the 19th century, as so many people have, as a time of, you know, sort of uh, diamond Jim Brady, uh, gross uh, uh, exuberance, Gain the gym crackery of it yeah. all, you know, and then the hypocrisies. Um, and if you if you denigrate that time as being a time that didn't produce very much of real consequence to the human spirit, you're missing a big point because it was a very creative time. It was really, I think, our most creative time. Now, the obvious manifestations of it are things like the airplane and the car and the the Bessemer steel process and the typewriter. Think what the typewriter did, for example. Just that one invention to transform mm, the whole yeah, way we, yeah. way people work. Yeah. Uh, and who, who gets a job in the city? It was the typewriter that brought all those women to the yeah. city. Sister yeah. Carrie, you know, and all the Sister, Sister Carries. And also J.M. Barry has a, remember there used to be a one-act play, a skit, we used to be involved with Ethel Barrymore, it's called The 12-Pound Luck. And it's the liberation of the woman from her domineering husband because she mastered the typewriter, or mistress the typewriter, and she became free of him. That's right. It was a liberating machine, yeah, if yeah. you choose to yeah. take that. Also, idea. we come to Roosevelt, the, the shadow or the sh shape of things to come to populism, labor. Now, also labor, unions being formed, too, 
the big migration. Yeah, well, I think, to me, personally, one of the one of the vivid moments of this story, one of the chapters in the book that I enjoyed most writing was when he encounters Samuel Gompers, and Gompers takes him on a tour uh, of the sweatshops to see how those cigar workers really lived and what a revelation it was to the man. And, and, it, and he comes back to Albany as a young legislator there, and he says, I don't care what my political doctrine is, something has to be done to alleviate the suffering of those people. And if we have to do it with legislation, then we have to do it with legislation, which, of course, was in violation of his whole laissez-faire mm-hmm. political philosophy. That's interesting. And that was the, a cigar. There you see the man beginning to grow. And growth is really what one works with when writing the story of a human being. And, and what I've tried to do, among other things, is to show how the other people that were close to him and important to him were also growing and changing, that they weren't just stereotypes. Uh, often in biography, those people are given as uh, like fixed entities on the landscape. They don't change, but the father was changing, the mother was changing. And what did those people mean to him? Here's a kid, for example, that, as you remember in the book, he goes to Harvard and he writes home, to me, one of the funniest lines in the whole story, and he says, I am 19th in my class, academic standing. I'm 19th in my class, but only two gentlemen are ahead of me. Gentlemen. That's interesting. In other words, those, all those other don't yeah. count because they aren't gentlemen. I'm only competing with gentlemen. Now, yeah. now imagine the, the, the complete turnaround in one's head that it takes to become the political figure of the Bull Moose campaign the, whose voice we just heard. And by the way, that elegant voice that's like FDR's voice, he never really changed his uniform, his costumes, or his no, dress. And I he? think that's yeah. so admirable. Why don't you because t- ordinarily someone who's rich will try, or wants to be part of a political scene, a man of the people yes. will sort of put on a, a T-shirt or yes. something like that. Be one of the boys. He never did that. Like one. Never did that. Yeah. And I think the most dramatic example of that is when he went west to become a so-called cowboy. And uh, he, it would have been very easy for him to ape the, 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 the way of talking, the way of dressing, all of it, to get, to get in with those guys, those very tough, uh, hard-bitten Western characters. But he didn't do that. He's, he's the one that climbs into the saddle in North Dakota with a <coughs> bunch of his men around him, and they're going across uh, herding the, the cows, and he shouts to one of them, hasten forward quickly there. <laughs> uh, well, you know, they, they practically fell out of the saddle laughing at him. And he's got glasses on, and he's got buck teeth, and he's little. He's little. That's another thing that most people don't understand. He was a small man. He only weighed about 125 pounds mm. then. And yet he never deviated mm. from what his true way mm. was. He wore the pearl-handled revolvers, and, you know, he carried a scabbard and a, and a, and a dagger <laughs> that were custom-made for him by Tiffany. His, his cowboy outfit cost him $100. Well, that would be $1,000 today, you know. Uh, he was really the rhinestone cowboy. Yeah. But uh, the fact that even, and also, of course, in his political life, he never was a, a backroom uh, dealer the way uh, it would have been so easy for him to become. And as other people who came from that same kind of... Uh, milieu who went into politics uh, did. I mean, Boyce Penrose, for example, uh, he could... He could Boyce Penrose of Pennsylvania was a rich guy who became corrupted. He became a political boss. Yeah. And they said that when he got with his political cronies, the way he talked, dressed, his manners, his morals, everything, mm. you couldn't tell the difference. Well, uh, this guy maintained this righteous air and believed it. Yes. Yeah. Theodore was really, somebody once said about Theodore, well, two things I love. One of them was that they said that he, he so craved to be the center of attention, which I think goes back to his asthmatic childhood when you know, there's no more galvanizing, dramatic 
audience-holding performance than an, an acute attack of asthma. Theodore so adored the limelight, it was said, that he, he wanted to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse mm. at every funeral. <laughs> uh, the other thing that, that I, uh, I love about him is that he is a man who said, if you took Theodore Roosevelt and put him in a pot and boiled it down and down and down until you got the essence of the man, what you would find was the preacher militant, mm. which is, again, one of the reasons the country so adored him. There's a line at the end of the book where he, somebody asks him, how do you know what the people feel and what they want to do and you to do? He said, I don't know. All I know is what I want them to do. Mm. Now, what a different attitude that is from the present where they're out taking polls mm. and samples and trying to find out which way the wind's blowing and how they should go and so forth and so on. He never had any public relations men writing uh, writing his speeches for him. He never he did his own speeches. He did his wrote everything, everything, and he wrote and wrote and wrote yeah. thousands, hundred thousand letters. Uh, all of his messages to Congress, all of his political speeches, all of his twenty some books, he wrote himself. Mm. Quite remarkable. And of course, the color came here. He he was the most cartooned. Uh, now presidents have been cartooned down through the years, uh, Lincoln, of course, and, uh, but he became the great subject because of of. Well, his appearance. Well, he everything. was a cartoonist dream come true. You know, the cowboy regalia, the the, the pince-nez glasses, the the teeth, the mustache. Somebody once uh, sent a letter, and all they did was they drew some glasses and a mustache, and it was delivered to Theodore Roosevelt. This was before he became president. And that but was it. The whole country right. knew what so, that was because the yeah. cartoonists had yeah. so galvanized this impression on. And unfortunately, that impression, that sort of caricature, is what has come down to too many of us. It's the arsenic and old lace figure hmm. of Teddy Roosevelt. And he wasn't like that. He was much more interesting, yeah. much more cerebral, much more complex. It's funny, in, your, in the introduction to your book, you speak of your first discovery of Roosevelt. Yes. What you heard uh, where your brother was playing the role in arsenic and old lace. Charge! Yes. Of course, his phrases go down through the years. Too bully, yes, bully pulpit. By the way, that is, he was really preaching, wasn't he? Yes, and he used that pulpit if, almost as a bully. That yes. is, he would he, try to force his opinion. Well, of course, bully was an expression, an English yeah. expression, uh -huh. and most upper class uh, Easterners aped the manners and the words ah, and the style of dress and so forth of the English. So there were lots of people who yeah. said bully, but he, he was the great. first one on yeah. the national yeah. stage. Bully meaning wonderful, yeah. terrific, and so the pulpit. And he's I mean, he, was, he was saying it was a, it's a wonderful pulpit. Mm. Now, the only president that I know who ever pinpointed the real power of the presidency was Truman, who said the only power we really have, we meaning we presidents mm. of the United States, is our ability to lead the people through the force of words, force of ideas. That's the power of the presidency. And Roosevelt saw this at the very, you know, the dawn of our century. And, of course, he was very good at it. And he, again, he loved it. He was an actor. He was a very accomplished actor. So you have to think, then, it's interesting that it runs in the family, didn't it? I mean, that FDR. Yes. FDR, a sort of nephew, well, he went away. Let's see. He was what? He was. Well, he was uh, Theodore Roosevelt's cousin. That's it. Quite removed. But he married Theodore Roosevelt's niece. niece. That's what brought him closest. But to here are the two of this family, generally, the two great actors. Yes. And having that same upper-class accent, yet reaching multi-millions. Oh. It's remarkable. I don't know that it could happen. And, and what makes a family produce those people? That's what's so interesting. We don't know enough about family life. We don't know, and particularly, I think, at a time when, we're, when, it's, when it's vanishing. You know, It isn't just, perhaps, that this kind of a family has vanished 
families in general, as they were known then, are vanished. And we better know about it before it completely vanishes. Yeah. Uh, what, what were the strengths that that kind of a family gave to this child? And what were the disadvantages that that intense, that almost pressure cooker of family life in that time uh, created in a child that he felt he had to fight to overcome? Before I want to come back to Roosevelt, the pragmatist, where now he splits from his father's image. But before that, you're talking about Roosevelt going west. Again, a matter of health, outdoors. Now, the West at that time was it was a rediscovery of it I mean, uh, in popular fiction and uh, writing, well, wasn't it? it? The romanticizing of the West. The, the, the romanticizing of the, of the West and the whole myth of the cowboy comes from three Easterners. That's what's so interesting. The three men who created that, the, the Marlboro Man, if you will, uh, were Owen Wister with his novel, The Virginian, Frederick Remington with his paintings, and Theodore Roosevelt with his books yeah. about my life on the ranch. He knew Wister, didn't he? Yeah, oh, they were all friends. They were friends. All yeah, of them. All three were friends. All three were friends. And they went back east to write yeah. and paint all yeah. these things that created Isn't the aura. Interesting. They and they were all yeah. upper class, yeah. Ivy League, Easterners, each of whom went west as a kind of a, an adventure in discovery and, and as, a, as, a, as therapy, physical or emotional therapy. Theodore Roosevelt had had what we today would probably call a nervous breakdown as a consequence of the terrible tragedy of his life, which was the death of his mother and of his wife on the same day, within hours of one another, in the same house. And he came apart after that. Yeah, he had started politics. He was, at, yes, in, he had, he was in the state legislature. And had made a, a big name for himself. He, he, I rose like a rocket, he said, and he, he wasn't kidding. He but then did. He, but then he went out there where it was pretty rough, it, the rhinestone cowboy. And there's a song you mentioned, because out there came guys who escaped one thing or another, uh, pretty rough customers, and this was the song. Oh, what was your name in the States? Was it Thompson or Johnson or Bates? Did you murder your wife and fly for your life? Say, what was your name in the States? It's as simple as that, and that kind of sets the, the place, the kind of guys there. It's a very, I'm so glad you played this, because uh, what was your name in the States shows that if you went west, you could change your identity. And one of the things he was craving was a change of identity, not a change of identity of, the, of himself as this political figure of note, but the change of identity from that whole Eden, Edith Wharton world of the tight little Knickerbocker society of upper-class New York, which was a cloying, stifling atmosphere. And just as Edith Wharton wanted to break out of that with her writing to be an artist, Roosevelt wanted to break out in some form, mm -hmm. namely politics, mm -hmm. though he wasn't quite sure at that point. Maybe writing, maybe politics, mm -hmm. but something. Then he says, did you murder your wife and flee for your life, it says in the mm -hmm. song. Mm -hmm. His wife had just died, and he wasn't there and I'm sure that he felt a was a guilt. guilt. He had to ah. have felt it. Anybody would have felt it. And did you flee for your life after murdering your wife? Ah. He flees to the West for, to, to recover himself, mm. to get his life back. And uh, it, it couldn't be more appropriate to that whole experience. Now, of course, you have to understand yeah. that he didn't go West the way most of everybody else did. He went West as a ranch man you know, as a gentleman. And it was fashionable to go West if you were of a certain he was economic, a, a dude cowboy. Life. A dude cowboy. Mm. And there were hundreds, maybe yeah. thousands of yeah. them out there then. And, uh, you know, you went shooting. And mm. one of the interesting things, too, is that you could do anything that was hard work, dirty, grubby, so forth, as long as it, had, it was associated with a horse. 
because the horse was an aspect of, of the gentleman's world. He wouldn't, you know, go dig the latrine or help build the cabin, uh, but he'd do anything in the most uh, rugged, uh, trying circumstances. If it had something to do with a horse, yeah. Uh, but Charging up San Juan Hill. Yeah, the, the Gore, Gore Vidal, who has written, a, um, I, I think, a brilliant review of my book uh, in that uh, in what he sees in, in the, the New book, York Review in the New York Review uh, the title of the book of the piece is the American sissy and he he's saying that Theodore Roosevelt really was a sissy at heart now I think what he misses in the book and in the in Roosevelt's story is what he did in the West because no sissy could have done that the macho front wasn't just an act he he endures the physical punishment. He endures the the bad food and the terrible climate and the hard life and the sleepless nights of Roundup and all of that with all the tenacity, with all the courage and sort of gut bravery of the toughest cowboy that he was working with. And it was that that ingratiated with the, him with them. It's mm. that way that he got mm. in with them, not by mm. surface imitation mm. of their manners or their mm. way of talking or dress. And that's the way he well, won you know, their hearts, and that's the way he won the country's yeah, heart. And this yeah. whole myth, mythical story yeah, yeah. of the weak little boy who becomes the strong man is true. And, it was, and, and the country knew it then, mm. and there was mm. something terribly appealing about that. He was it's, trans- it's what all of us feel. And he transcended. He was a sissy condition. in the sense that we're all yeah. sissies. Yeah. You know, we're all filled with yeah. fears and mm. senses of inadequacy and so forth. Mm. But he overcomes it. He triumphs over it. Ruggles. It's a, a heroic way. story. It's also Ruggles in a way. If Ruggles were American, yes, in a way, in a yes, way. yes. But it's interesting. But then the hunter, maybe perhaps overcompensated because I was naturally I'm disturbed by the wild hunting and the anybody and would the be profligate anybody shooting would the birds. Why did the he do it? Slaughtering the animals, yeah. killing them uh, by the hundreds. Something in him needed to do that. And I would be presumptuous. Uh, I would be uh, venturing into areas of psychology and uh, psychoanalysis that is not my um, right to do. I think what you have to say is, did it work for him? And it did. He, 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 he triumphed. He survived. There's one point where he shoots his first grizzly bear. I don't really remember this. And right after he kills the bear, and he's terrified of the bear, and he's been terrified of the bear all of his life, as a small boy, he had nightmares about wolves and bears and things coming at him out of the dark. And he shoots the bear, and he writes a letter to his older sister, who was so important to him. Uh, she was as important to him as anybody in his life, all of his life. He says, strangely enough, I can sleep now. Hmm. In other words, something was hmm. keeping him awake at night, and he kills that bear, and all of that kind of goes away. He said he could sleep night. He was and insomnia. He sleep. But also the bear, I suppose, in dreams, the mythic bear. Who the knows? The grizzly of dreams. Who knows? You know? I went yeah. and read Faulkner's story, The Bear, thinking maybe I might find mm. an answer in mm. there. But that would be, uh, you know, that would yeah. be uh, Ill, uh, a bad way to go about solving this problem because yeah. he wasn't Faulkner, he was Theodore yeah. Roosevelt. But he came back. Now, after his sojourn in the West, he comes back now to resume his life because yes. he was a political animal deep down. Yes. And so now he resumes his life. And now he's so colorful, he becomes the center. There's a big 
convention. Oh, first he's challenging. When did he begin? He comes did, to the Chicago yeah. Convention in 1884. Now, when did that social conscience come to be when he was, he used the phrase, the wealthy criminal class? That happens when he took on Jay Gould, you know, the political bear, if you will, the bad ah, force. Ah, the bear, right. He's, he's, always, he's yeah. always fighting evil, mm -hmm. which goes right back to Pilgrim's Progress. Mm -hmm. His father, one, Greatheart. Greatheart. One must be strong because evil is powerful and a force in the world. Therefore, you must be stronger than evil. It's an old, old mm, concept, mm, you know. Mm. There's, there's, there's really nothing much so new. So he must have read Bunyan, of course. Oh, yeah. he was raised yeah. on it, uh, oh. as, as was the 19th century. Mm -hmm. Lincoln, you mm. know, uh, uh, credited. But uh, incidentally, if you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress no. lately, read it. No. It is extraordinary. No. It's marvelous. Yeah. And uh, he, he said the, uh, you know, the, the wealthy criminal class, referring to the Goulds and yeah. the, 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 the economic pirates of mm -hmm. the day. And this was a brave, uh, radical thing yeah. to have said then. And, you know, this whippersnapper in the, in the dudish clothes yeah. up in Albany talking about yeah. the wealthy criminal well, you class. Know, thinking, you know, I'm thinking that's, that, that's poetically right here. His second, his cousin, in 1936, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's inaugural speech of one-third of a nation, ill-fed, ill-clothed, ill-housed, speaks of the, get this, malefactors of great wealth. Same, same yeah, theme. Amazing. Practically the same. With that elegant accent. With that elegant accent. And, of course, they charged him with being a traitor to his class. They never charged Theodore with that. That's right. No. Yeah. They said he was crazy, or they said he was imbalanced. Uh, you know, Mark Hanna called him that damn cowboy, meaning he was uh, unstable. But they never said he was a traitor to his class. Henry James. Now, we think of class, you know, and representing a certain class. Henry James, the expatriate, writing novels. In one, the proper boss, don't you point out, it may have well been a description of Teddy Roosevelt. Where was that? Yeah, there's a description there. On page, why don't you read that on 252? Uh, and then your thoughts about it. Yeah, but that's interesting. So he knew James, of Roosevelt. James wrote uh, he, that his leading character yeah. wanted to be full of purpose to live and with high success, to become great in order not to be obscure. In other words, not to be out of the limelight, not to be obscure and powerful not to be useless. You get power to do good. Now, of course, who's to decide what yeah, good is? There you know, and the that. answer to that is you are. You are because you have been born and bred into a tradition, and you've been educated at Harvard, yeah. and it, it is your, uh, your birthright, so to speak, which uh, yeah. is a notion that and uh, so he's doesn't gonna, wash anymore. He is the knight now. Uh, venturing forth to battle exactly. the forces of you, and he's coming to Chicago. And now, the convention of 1884. Here in Chicago. Okay. Yep. Great, now, great moment. Yeah. One, now, of the, one of the greatest political moments of political theater in the history of the country. Why don't you describe that, the leading candidate and Roosevelt's mission? Well, uh, James G. Blaine, Blaine of Maine, the Plume Knight, who was beloved by the party, and was really an extraordinary man, and uh, with great uh, warmth and great uh, sense of people, love of people, came to, the, came to the convention with the convention locked up. There wasn't any question he was going to get the nomination. But Roosevelt led a delegation of Eastern reformers who were determined that they were going to put somebody more acceptable to them into power. Who, it didn't matter too much mm. who that might be, but they were against Blaine. Blaine gets the nomination to this tumultuous, colorful, wonderful convention, and, and which had one of the 
the, the high moments of high drama in the whole history of our convention system when a blind man from, from Ohio, Judge William West, got up in front of the delegation and he gave this momentous speech. I can't read all of it and I won't do him justice, but he says, Gentlemen, the Republican Party demands of this convention a nominee whose inspiration and glorious prestige shall carry the presidency. Nominate him and the campfires and beacon lights will illuminate the continent from the Golden Gate to Cleopatra's Needle. Nominate him and the millions who are now waiting will rally to swell the column of victory that is sweeping on. In the name of the majority of the delegates of the Republican states and their glorious constituencies, who must fight this battle? I nominate. And he didn't even, he wasn't even able to get no. James G. Blaine out, and the whole place exploded with this magnificent eruption. And then a half hour later, he's able to say James G. Blaine. And, and here's did, a, and blind, a, a blind old man he, in a black robe led by a small boy yes. to the platform. How could you he know, miss? How could he miss? <laughs> and uh, uh, Roosevelt then had the decision. Did he no. bolt the party? Did he leave the party and go with the Democrats who were going to nominate as Robert Cleveland? As let us say, Cleveland, his father, Theodore, his father would have, have as all yeah. of his father's yeah. friends did, as most of his own you know, liberal or progressive Republican friends did? Or does he swallow his pride, eat crow, and support the nominee? Now, he, he did the latter. And this was the great turning point in his life, the, one of the momentous political decisions historically, because what it meant was that I, he was saying, I am in this business for real, for keeps. I'm a professional, and I go with the party. If he hadn't done that, he would have been finished. No question about it, because others who were almost as promising and as, as popular and as known as he was, who didn't go with Blaine, people like Seth Lowe of the mayor of uh, Brooklyn, we're finished. So he was now the pragmatic politician. She had become one of the boys, which is what he wanted. Because he's, you see what's, what he's doing there is he's saying, I am not my father. I am me. I'm different. I go my way. And that's the sign that he's a man. And that's when the book almost could have ended, except that he's still in a terrible emotional state because of the tragedy of his wife and his mother's deaths. And he was in bad shape physically, so he had to go on to the Dakota Territory to recover his strength and his mental equilibrium. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, he goes to the Badlands, which is a terribly, as he said, it, the Badlands look like Poe Sounds. This was a, mm -hmm. a strange, eerie, mm -hmm. uh, haunted landscape in which for one to uh, uh, recover uh, a, a sense of well-being. But he, it worked for him. Mm -hmm. Again, if it worked for him, mm -hmm. then it was right. See, we're talking, aren't we, here also about a figure who's remarkably ambivalent, aren't we? The terribly, two things at work. Terribly. And that's also a theme of your book. Absolutely. The ambiguity here, back yes. and forth. Yes. Yeah. If, you, if you can imagine, it seems to me, if you can imagine uh, a personality as a circumference, a circle, the larger the personality, the larger the circle, and therefore the more likelihood that that circle will include many contradictory mm. aspects. Mm. He was the naturalist who loved to kill, yeah. the conservationist right. who, who hung stuffed heads all around his house. He was the, the, the rich man who, who becomes the, the progressive voice for social reform, on and on. Yeah. Uh, he, he was the bully strong man, the, op, the great optimist who in his private hours retired and read the poetry e. of Edward Robinson, Arlington Robinson. 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 Richard Carr, who's, who put who, a bullet through his Exactly. Head. All yeah. these, these poems, the, yeah, the essence of which is despair and the burden yeah. of memory yeah. and all of that. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, I was going to comment on the fact that he used to read Edward Arlington Robinson. Yes. 
favorite poet. Yeah, and he there did, he came out. While we cursed our daily bread, the sky was so elegant, like Teddy Roosevelt. But you, home, you know, we think of Roosevelt as a kind of Kipling-esque figure, which he was in. Yeah. He was a man of many masks. Yeah, yeah. He w- again, I go back yeah. to the analogy of the theater and of, and, of, and of an actor. Yeah, he's a perform. He's a performer. And most of the great politicians, yeah. of course, are performers. Yeah. That's why I, I'm, I'm sometimes annoyed when people say, you realize we have a president of the United States who's an actor? Yeah. Well, yeah. seldom we have had a president of the United States who wasn't yeah. an actor. Well, they were good actors. <laughs> the others were good actors. <laughs> now we come back to, uh, to the last part of the book. He ran for mayor, uh, lost, wasn't expected to win. He gets beat, but that but doesn't matter. No, but the That's interesting the thing is uh, the guy who ran second was Henry George, yes. a single taxer. And uh, some would say that George was gypped out of that uh, election, you know. There's a lot of stories about that. Yes, and the, the victor yeah. was Abram Hewitt, yeah. who was uh, sort of a, a gentleman Regular. Democrat. But it ends on that. That's the beginning. And then later on, Roosevelt continues and goes on. Well, it really ends on the idea that he's going to get married the second time. And that, to me, is uh, symptomatic or symbolic of the fact that he's embracing life again. He's going to have, oh. a, have a wife and a, and a family. He's going to go to Sagamore Hill and live there. And... And everybody knows, including Theodore Roosevelt, that he's on his way. Yeah, that's funny. It could almost be a subtitle, Mornings on Horseback by David McCullough. Subtitle could almost be The Embrace of Life or Embracing Life. Uh, Maybe I should talk to you. I'm (laughs) writing my title. It's a remarkable book uh, in that it's a study of transcendence of a real character. I mean, character in uh, in the literal sense of the word, real character. And Simon and Schuster, the publisher of Dave McCullough's very excellent work. Let's end with a song. It'll be Roosevelt the Cry, which was a 1904 song when he was elected president. Oh, by the way, the youngest president we yes. ever had. Everybody's at first. The first reaction would say John Kennedy. Oh, no, true. No, Theodore was 42. Kennedy was 43. The youngest president. And so it's Roosevelt the Cry into what became associated with him, that old minstrel song, uh, "Hot Time in the Old Town Tonight." Because that was the great Spanish-American yeah, War song, that and that, was, of course, was his, yeah. the heroic uh, San Juan Hill heroic. episode was what yeah. he was so closely identified and with. And so we'll end with Bessie Smith singing. I Wonderful. Think so let's have, end with the uh, segue from one to the other. And Dave McCullough, thank you very much. Uh, the book is Mornings on Horseback, Simon and Schuster, the publishers, and it is indeed available in very exciting reading. Glatzy. <laughs> Now hear the call throughout the land. Come and proudly take your stand. Now uphold your chieftain's hand, Roosevelt the cry. Blow the bugle, beat the drum. From the north and south they come. From the east and west they come, Roosevelt the cry. Lincoln's name, McKinley's too, they traduced and they would anew. Trust them, I will not, will you? Roosevelt the cry. Let that Democrat named Hill all his evil venom spill, yet he'll taste a bitter pill. Roosevelt the cry. History shall write his name on the immortal scroll of fame, then shall all his deeds proclaim. Roosevelt the cry. Roosevelt, the soldier true, Roosevelt, the statesman too, sane for me and safe for you, Roosevelt, the cry.
Hot time in old town tonight. 